Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, Today on the show, we have... A uh, really exciting guest, Dr. Howard Hayden, uh, who runs the uh, great energy newsletter, The Energy Advocate, which along with the newsletter Access to Energy, uh, founded by Peter Beckman and run by Art Robinson, is one of my two favorite energy newsletters and one that I learn an enormous amount from. Uh, and one of the great things about someone like Dr. Hayden is that he has an experience writing about these issues uh, for decades. So I thought on today's show, we'd take a decades-long topic, which is energy policy. And we're going to talk to Dr. Hayden about the energy policy of the U.S. over the past four or five decades, what's been good, if anything, what's been bad, uh, and what would make it better in the future. So uh, Dr. Hayden is here with us. Dr. Hayden, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, How do you do? Thank you very much. Uh, Great to have you. So let me just start with this. What would you say, uh, if you were just evaluating it on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you give U.S. energy policy over the last 50 years, and then why? Well, 50 years ago, I probably would have given it a 10. Uh, today, I might give it a, uh, a 1 or a 2. Um, we've had a uh, severe degradation Uh, of the understanding of the role of energy in society. In other words, uh, 50 years ago, people uh, understood the necessity for energy. And uh, today we seem to have politicians who think that electricity comes from the socket and milk comes from the grocery store. Uh, You know, they they just do not understand the role of energy. over the let's let me take a little bit longer view. Over the centuries, we've had a, uh, a uh, basically no energy policy whatsoever. Yet, nonetheless, uh, we have made uh, enormous strides in uh, in conservation efforts and in efficiency. For example, if you go back to the invention of the steam engine, uh, it was 0.05 percent efficient. And now with combined cycle uh, power plants, we're turning out electricity with 60% efficiency. Uh, If you go back to the days of candles, it was uh, something like a sixth of a lumen per watt. And now it's something like uh, 20 lumens per watt. Uh, If you look at insulation, uh, there was no such thing as... uh, fiberglass insulation for homes uh, when I was a kid, and now it's, it's kind of all over the place. There was no such thing as foam insulation. Now it's all over the place. Uh, electric arc furnaces are far more efficient than, uh, than coal-fired, uh, coke-fired uh, uh, <clears throat> see, uh, foundries and so forth. So we have made efficiency improvements in just about everything we do, and this has all happened without an energy policy. Uh, following uh, During the Second World War, uh, people really understood energy because, uh, I mean, after all, there was a big fight about the, uh, the uh, oil fields in the Caucasus, and we tried trying to keep the Germans from getting at those oil fields. Uh, the, the Japanese actually made a horrible mistake uh, when they bombed Pearl Harbor that they didn't bomb our oil tanks that were over there. And uh, only after the war, when it was pointed out to them, did they recognize their folly. But in any case, uh, we've had a policy, where, or not a policy, but uh, at least an understanding that energy was necessary for everything we do. Everything we move, cut, shape, uh, anything we do, any any time we do anything to anything, we require energy. And the um, uh, 
well, what is the source of their energy? 85% of our energy comes from uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. And we have a uh, very severe war going on against all three at the present time. We have, we've had a long-term war against, uh, against nuclear power that has uh, gone on for several decades. It didn't start out that way. It started out with great enthusiasm. But uh, the anti-war crowd is out in force, and there's entirely too many of them in Washington, D.C., so <laughs> we'll start with that. <laughs> now, when you say the anti-war crowd, I assume you mean the, the people who were originally the anti-Vietnam crowd and then morphed into the Green Movement once that war was over and they needed a new way to attack capitalism. Well, that, that might be, uh, you know, except I haven't kept track of people on a one-by-one -one basis, and so I can't quite claim that. But uh, if you can't name a use of energy, a source of energy, or a means of transportation or transmission of energy that is not opposed by groups that call themselves environmentalists. There are people against coal, there are people against oil, there are people against nuclear, there are people against natural gas, they're against fracking, they're against mining, they're against drilling, they're against pipelines, they're against uh, wind turbines, they are against hydropower. Uh, <clears throat> they uh, just just name it, and some group comes up to oppose it, uh, and um, they, you know, for large part, they don't understand the role of energy in society. Uh, so, and I, I, I really can't identify who they are. I mean, it's a different group every time, and there's thousands of them. And I, I can't. Yeah, say whether you know what their origins were. Well, I mean, I mean, the things you mentioned uh, point to uh, the common denominator. I think of of there's this antipathy toward the the transformation of nature as such. So whether it's drilling or whether it's uh, burning coal or whatever, there anything that's really man made uh, is a target, and that's something that you know goes back to even primitive religions. But but it's certainly a prominent feature of capitalism that I think. Once, um, you know, once socialism proved that it couldn't produce wealth, they chose to fixate on the fact that capitalism allegedly uh, destroyed our environment, when in fact, from a human perspective, it made it much better. Oh, well, yeah. If you take if you take a look at the uh, uh, civilized countries, uh, which may, which would include uh, Europe and most especially the United States and Canada, uh, but others, uh, the, the more civilized they are, the higher their their use of energy, uh, and the more modern they are, uh, the actual um, <clears throat> the more uh, kind they are to their environment, uh, because uh, you know people are not uh, as uh, desperate for survival, and so they they are willing to uh, let's say a lot a certain portion of their of their wealth toward uh, keeping the environment clean, and that is something that's certainly not true of um, uh, very primitive countries. It certainly isn't true of totalitarian places like the good old USSR, which was a, 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 an environmental disaster. So, yeah, I, I have to agree with you pretty much on that, sure. So let's, let's talk a little bit uh, more concretely about different policies. One of the central institutions of energy, um, and when I say energy policy, I just mean what the government does toward energy. My own belief is that it, it shouldn't have a policy except for a foreign policy. Um, but if, if we look at what the government has done legally and then on a regulatory level, uh, probably the most prominent institution is the EPA. Uh, can you give us some background on the EPA and then your evaluation of what kind of force it's been over the decades? Well, the EPA started out with a, uh, a quite reasonable mandate, which was to uh, clean up the environment and to keep people from uh, lousing up the environment. And uh, we must, I must say that the, the quality of the air and the quality of our waters and so forth has vastly improved since the EPA began. But uh, they have turned out to be, in a way, kind of a... Um, 
malicious organization that is uh, pretty much opposed to anything. Uh, they're um, they they're trying, for example, to shut down all all uses of coal. Uh, they are um, well that one is that one is really bad. <clears throat> but but there there are many other cases where they they are simply uh, just gone over the top, and um, uh, and, and in fact uh, one of the EPA administrators was uh, was rather famous for uh, talking about um, uh, going into uh, well it, the way the Romans did it they, they would go into some village and uh, just kill off a few people arbitrarily. And then for a while, the village was very easy to control. And um, they have, uh, just to give you an idea of how malicious they have become, uh, <clears throat> there was a, there's a recent thing where uh, the EPA has fined uh, the um, American Petroleum Institute and the American Fuel and Petrochem manufacturers uh, for not putting in uh, enough um, uh, <clears throat> ethanol made from uh, cellulose, cellulosic ethanol, and they have made some rather severe fines on these people. And uh, the only problem is that these uh, this cellulosic ethanol simply doesn't exist. And so what they have done is to find the prospective buyers for not buying a non-existent product and and uh, you just I mean <clears throat> my uh, sailor friends can't come up with words quite bad enough to describe what they have done well so, so let's I I find this an interesting narrative that the, the EPA started off pretty well and then has degenerated because my own sentence is that it from the beginning has had a mandate that's not really about property rights and about a delimited uh, protection of of air and water and people's rights therein. It it gives the government a rather global mandate to protect quote the environment as it sees fit, which seems as if it will necessarily involve an enormous amount of central interference and enormous amount of arbitrary decision making, such as. Well, we decide what's good for quote the environment is X amount of cellulosic ethanol, and um, so what do you think about a property rights based system versus the um, more authoritarian system or the the central interference or central planning system that is the EPA? Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll address that just in a second, but uh, one of the things that uh, sort of got people's dander uh, up early on was the flammability of the Cuyahoga River. I mean, here's a whole river that was aflame. And uh, then we had rather terrible air pollution and so forth. Well, those are things that uh, that really needed to be uh, corrected. And, and uh, you know, those things have happened. Uh, <clears throat> throwing uh, flammable stuff into a river uh, does not come under my purview of, uh, let's, let's call it uh, property rights. That's a whole different issue. Um, <clears throat> uh, keeping people from mining their own property, well, then that becomes a, a property right issue. But, but the, uh, the main thing that is uh, wrong, let's say, governmentally uh, with places like, with outfits like the EPA is that they, uh, they act without feedback. And uh, that is that they are uh, immune to... Uh, regulation by the uh, by the Congress, uh, and they are immune to to uh, uh, regulation or, or to oversight by the courts. And as a consequence, they act rather arbitrarily and capriciously. And uh, I have a feeling that uh, that that day will end, but uh, it, it certainly must end before too awfully long because they have become. Um, let's call it totalitarian in scope, uh, in the sense that uh, they, they write rules and uh, do things rather uh, capriciously, and they receive no feedback, they receive no correction, they receive no punishment, uh, and, uh, or anything like that for whatever they do that is wrong. 
And that is precisely the prescription for a totalitarian, um, uh, let's say, um, emergence. <clears throat> and it's, uh, that kind of thing has, has got to be corrected somehow. And I think uh, it, it's probably going to boil down to the, the uh, well, there may be a court case or two against them. Um, <clears throat> I, I do know of one court case that, that was rather interesting. And that was that the the EPA demanded that alcohol uh, be that that corn-based alcohol be put into the um, uh, into gasoline. Well, alcohol as ethanol works very well in gasoline as an octane increaser, and it's a heck of a lot better than tetraethyl lead. Okay, you know we'll take that much as a fact. But uh, the main source of, of ethanol at the time was, uh, was actually petroleum, because you can get ethanol out of petroleum. But the EPA was demanding that the, that the ethanol, which is uh, just a simple chemical formula, uh, had to come from corn. So there was a court case, and the court case uh, uh, was ruled this way. The Supreme Court said that the EPA has the right to demand, if, if they see fit, that ethanol be in gasoline for reasons of protecting the environment, but it can't specify that it has to come from corn. The, the uh, response of the Congress to that was to actually in, institute its own law uh, saying that, well, uh, uh, the EPA can't say this, but we can say this, that the ethanol has to come from corn. And that was a, a sop thrown to the Corn Growers Association. And uh, now uh, there's a big price being paid for that. And that was actually an act of Congress, not of the EPA. So there's plenty of stupidity to go around. Yeah, which is why I'm... I mean, suspicious of the idea that Congress is going to be some, you know, a major part of a cure by itself because, I mean, Congress is responsible for the ethanol mandate. And Congress is also responsible for giving these arbitrary powers. And indeed, it has a large incentive to do so because it, it doesn't have to be very specific in what kinds of powers it's allocating. And then it can it can make people feel good. Oh, we're, you know, we're taking care of these environmental issues without actually facing the specifics of what this incredibly uh this this power wielding agency will actually do with that power and then in a sense they can wash their hands of it or say oh the EPA is out of control we never expected them to do something like this so it seems inherent in in the model yeah it's it's inherent in the model that you should uh, you should never grant anybody uh uh sort of um unfettered power and they they did that largely with the EPA, and uh, so the EPA has gotten very much out of control. Uh, <clears throat> but by the way, there was a time when the when the NRC um, uh, became uh, under uh, well, they too had such a mandate, and they were making rather uh, uh, stupid demands on the nuclear power industry, uh, and uh, they had regulations in there about the, uh, uh, the the lighting in the men's room of a nuclear power station, and you know just trivial stuff like that, and it just amounted to uh, tons and tons of paperwork for people trying to put in a nuclear power station, and uh, finally. Uh, uh, the I, somehow the name Shirley Jackson comes up, but I don't know if it's exactly true. But but uh, she kind of uh, thundered at the NRC and said, you know, it's within our power to cut off all your funding. You don't get rid of this junk. We're going to cut off all your funding. Is that clear? <laughs> so so oh oh okay okay fine. So the NRC then started acting a little bit more rationally. Well, when they realized that uh, they they didn't have absolute power. Um, so speaking of the NRC, uh, what can you give us the arc of of nuclear policy from the '60s to the present? Because you mentioned that it had been in favor, and now it's it's certainly out of favor. 
Yeah, well, um, there, there was there was always an anti-nuclear element, and uh, you know, people would uh, start off their presentation showing uh, a an atomic bomb blast, quite as if a nuclear power station bore some resemblance to a bomb. Uh, so there, there, there was always a certain amount of anti anti-nuclear sentiment, and then we had the accident at Three Mile Island, which incidentally harmed absolutely nobody except financially. And uh, well, they, there was a there was a fuel melt, and there was uh, very little radiation release. Uh, and uh, certainly, anyone who stayed at the site boundary uh, for a year uh, received would receive less radiation than if they had moved a uh, uh, hundred feet higher in altitude and spent a year there. So there was uh, just absolutely trivial amounts of radiation, but that stopped the nuclear industry uh, in the U.S. And, um, uh, <clears throat> and, and for no reason whatsoever. Uh, Chernobyl came along and uh, that one used a, uh, a design of, of the reactor that had uh, been rejected in the 1950s. That's 1950, the 1950s. That design had been rejected in the United States, but uh, that was nevertheless kind of a nail in the coffin of uh, U.S. Uh, nuclear uh, power. But there are some things that are, that are happening uh, right now. One of them is they're uh, start they're uh, using old permits. They they're building, uh, I guess it's two uh, nuclear reactors in Georgia at the Volcker plant. And another thing they're doing is beginning to uh, to understand that uh, the best way to use nuclear power might not be to have super large stations, but to have uh, smaller stations that uh, can. Uh, can be used in many more types of communities. Some of these, you'd have the whole nuclear reactor already buried underground, uh, 300 feet down, and uh, they they require no controls whatsoever. All you do is you pump down helium, and it comes back hot, and you use that to run a steam cycle. Um, and that would be that would be absolutely terrific. Uh, people, and especially the Indians, are looking after thorium because they have uh, tremendous amounts of thorium, and it has some advantages. One of them is it's all one isotope. Another one is that it is a uh, uh, <clears throat> well, you, you don't produce any transuranics. That is, uh, these long-lived elements that are that are heavier than uranium, and uh, so you'd have only short-lived stuff, uh, which is um, sort of the uh, conventional uh, high-level nuclear waste. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there are people looking around at that, and probably the U.S. will uh, start up some nuclear reactors before too awfully long. Although the thing that is uh, currently in vogue is uh, combined cycle power plants. Uh, I don't know if you're you, un, you you know quite what they are like. But, well, I, I do, but uh, it'd be good to explain it to the audience. Okay, um, with a combined cycle power plant, you have uh, you feed natural gas usually. Usually, it's natural gas into a combustion term, a turbine. That is rather like the uh, uh, jet engine on a jet plane, and that spins and it runs a generator and produces some electricity. But the exhaust is very, very hot, so the exhaust is uh, uh, sent through a highly insulated uh, channel over to uh, heat up water to run a steam cycle. So you get uh, uh, then the, the hot the hot gas producing steam and uh, and then you run a steam generator in a fairly conventional way and overall you get something like 60 percent overall efficiency and then even if you have it uh, positioned in the right place you can actually use 
the low-grade heat off the steam cycle to run something like a, a uh, 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 well, to, to provide heat for a sewage treatment plant uh, where things actually operate better if you have the water be a little bit warmer. And I understand there's a project right now, or at least uh, some outfit that's been started up in Virginia for exactly that purpose. So uh, for the time being, uh, the, the biggest growth in, uh, in energy is going to come from the uh, combined cycle power plants. Uh, in terms of nuclear, what about the economics over the decades? Because I've read from Bernard Cohen and others that those have declined tremendously because of government intervention, whereas you know, with other technologies, you would ex- in general, they become cheaper especially one with a low fuel cost like nuclear, and whereas this has become vastly more expensive. Yeah, they, they became vastly more expensive for a, a, a number of reasons, one of which was uh, the tremendous amount of uh, paperwork that had to be done and regulations pertaining to uh, things that had uh, nothing to do with safety, but it's just sort of yielding the lily all across the board. Uh, there was another uh, thing that contributed to the high cost of nuclear, and that was that um, uh, if you have a small, uh, uh, put that in quotes, small nuclear power plant, uh, the entire apparatus can essentially be built in a factory and shipped, let's say, on trains and trucks or something like that. When you go to the larger reactors that are something like uh, 1.3 gigawatts or something like that, then um, the assembly essentially has to be done on site, and that makes uh, the uh, installation more expensive. But another thing that is one of the things that has really driven up the cost of nuclear, and certainly did during the during the last days before uh, the let's say effective ban on nuclear, was that um, uh, there were court costs um, where where someone would be tied up in courts for years and years and years and years uh, uh, fighting. Meanwhile, they've got. Uh, uh, say, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars invested in which they're getting no return. To give you an idea, uh, they built the, um, <clears throat> well, there were, there were two nuclear reactors that applied for licenses in the same year, Millstone Unit 2 in Connecticut and uh, what was the name of the one on Long Island that might come to me in a moment. Uh, and uh, the one in Connecticut was was uh, had a well, it, it was it was over cost and a little bit over time and so forth. But they they finished that up uh, for um, half a billion dollars. And uh, meanwhile, the one on Long Island uh, was tied up in court costs and, and you know tied up in court with lots of money invested and time went on and time went on. When they finally got it built, the price is not a half a billion dollars, but five billion dollars for a plant exactly the same size as the one in Connecticut. And then the crazies came along, and they had the thing shut down before any power was developed. And uh, they were forced to sell the uh, power plant to the state of New York for one dollar. And the savings, of course, were passed on to the customer. Uh, anyway, that gives you an idea of the economics. That uh, the economics is not primarily controlled by the by the machinery, but by uh, uh, legal manipulation. I mean, given that if we look at nuclear, it's by far the safest form of power generation. What do you think government policy should be? Should there be an NRC? Well, um, I think you always have to have uh, some agency that, uh, if it does nothing more than than coordinate activities, that's a very good idea. For example, suppose 
that you find a problem with uh, a, a reactor built according to specifications X, whatever that happens to be, uh, at one power station, uh, then they they write up a report on that, and the NRC goes to the NRC, and then the NRC distributes the information to every other uh, power uh, station around that has that particular reactor, and uh, it's kind of a lookout. Uh, there, there is a problem with uh, this particular pipe. We need you to check that particular pipe on on your reactor, and I think that's a good idea as a coordinating agency and as a, um, let's call it a repository of central expertise on things, well, that's a good idea. But uh, <clears throat> again, they can be a little bit excessive and, and they need to be controlled just a little bit uh, so that they, they don't become uh, totally arbitrary. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to uh, some uh, government oversight of these things, but it ought to be intelligent oversight. And uh, <clears throat> they ought to, as I say, the nuclear industry decides that um, uh, they have become too arbitrary or something like that. Well, then the nuclear industry ought to have some say over who. Uh, the experts in this group ought to be, and uh, what their mission ought to be. Um, it, it just seems like nuclear gets discriminated against in this respect. I mean, is there is there an equivalent for oil or gas, even though those are more dangerous? Well, um, they, there is a, a tremendous amount of uh, antipathy toward coal that's... Uh, generated by crazies and there are people everywhere trying to shut down coal mines and in fact I was at a meeting in at the University of Kentucky and some uh, guy who was probably hoping to be considered wise uh, gave a talk wherein he noted that if you do open pit mining uh, and then you uh, re reclaim the, the hill by putting the topsoil back and growing trees and so forth, the hill is not as high as it used to be. <laughs> That's a thought. Um, but, but, you know, these people are, are just absolutely uh, crazy about things like uh, like coal. Um I'm I'm not too keen on uh, having people have to go underground, and I like uh, coal mines to be safe. But uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you should accept a situation where uh, everybody does without uh, energy simply because there is some potential hazard. So. Yeah, and then and then there's a there's a lot of uh, you know uh, antipathy toward uh, fracking, uh, which is uh, a technique that's actually been around for for over a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> they uh, the, the, this business about uh, fracking is in a way putting the emphasis on on the wrong thing. Fracking has been around a long time. But it's the horizontal drilling technique that uh, has enabled us to to really expand our uh, our energy supplies. And there's a just a tremendous amount of uh, natural gas available that way. So anyway, yeah, there's there are people who oppose that. There are people who oppose power lines. There are people who oppose uh, pipelines. There are uh, people who oppose. Uh, uh, liquid natural gas terminals. Uh, there are people who oppose uh, uh, refineries. Uh, you just name it. Somebody comes up against it. I think nuclear, you're right, uh, uh, receives more than it's uh, due. Uh, you know, you know, there's been nobody hurt by radiation from American reactors, and we have 104 of them in operation. So uh, and they've just been operating for many many decades, and and the kind of stuff that people worry about, which is that radiation hasn't hurt anybody. 
So, uh, yeah, it's it, it, there's been a, an absolutely uh, crazy, irrational, um, let's say, uh, uh, antipathy toward the nuclear industry. Um, what about let's let's move on to oil policy over the past fifty or so years. What's what's been the arc of that? Well. Uh, the oil production in the U.S. has, has increased uh, during the past several years, but it's no thanks to the government because the oil production on, on government lands uh, has actually decreased. It's, it's, the only thing that's happened is uh, on private lands. Uh, the government has uh, opposed um, drilling offshore, uh, there's tremendous amount of oil in the Gulf. Uh, the, the I think the Russians and the Chinese are are drilling off of Cuba, uh, and uh, the uh, Brazilians are uh, drilling off their coast. And we have uh, there. <clears throat> if we would be drilling off the California coast, we would actually be decreasing the amount of oil leaking into the ocean because there, there's a tremendous uh, amount of oil that leaks into the ocean through natural cracks and fissures, and we would be taking that oil away. Uh, there was a, basically a moratorium on drilling in the Gulf uh, because of one uh, rather bad accident. Uh, but uh, the, this was just, there had been all kinds of wells drilled there, and that takes very expensive, large equipment, and you can't let it sit idle, so uh, they effectively delayed any drilling until all of that equipment had, uh, had gone off to uh, uh, South America and other places. Uh, so uh, the, um, uh, let's say, Ken Salazar uh, has... Uh, uh, declared everything off limits because it, you know if it had any potential for producing energy whatsoever, and uh, so uh, yeah, that that's been you know bad policy for quite some time actually. Um, and then, what about uh, natural gas? That's been an interesting arc as well because you have I mean this the policies in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and it's it's become very prominent but for a while it was it was a fairly minor seemingly scarce uh form of energy yeah uh i actually wrote about that thing back in the 80s and i said that uh that no one really knows how much natural gas there is because the um, the government uh, forced the price to be so low uh, that there was no profitability in it, and therefore nobody had any in interest in exploration. And uh, well, when when that was allowed to uh, uh, to increase, that is, when the price of natural gas was allowed to increase, all of a sudden uh, people began finding it everywhere. And uh, uh, sure enough, there's you know, we're, we're awash in in, uh, in natural gas. What was the what was the policy in uh, when you were writing about that that made it inherently unprofitable and thus discouraged exploration and discovery? Well, actually, that was that was a a policy uh, that was um, set up, and I, I don't exactly I can't cite the law, but but the, the I, I can cite the idea. The idea was to. Uh, keep the uh, natural gas company from gouging customers, and uh, you know they're drilling this stuff that, uh, in quotes, belongs to all humans or something like that, and and therefore you can't make a profit on it, or much of a profit on it, and so they, it was just considered a um, uh, well, it's just not worth it. You know, well, why should I go looking for natural gas? Why should I invest? Millions of dollars in in uh, in drilling and and that's in you know searching and so forth. Uh, if if I'm not permitted to make any money on this thing, so that was the attitude of people and and 
<clears throat> well, you always get this. Whenever uh, the government decides it knows what the price ought to be, uh, it's, it's either going to uh, force a shortage or a surplus. Uh, because it can never, it can never uh, find a balance point because uh, there's no feedback from uh, supply to demand. Uh, so, uh, so, so there was uh, the, the, the artificial low price for natural gas uh, uh, forced a shortage. Now, if you would set the uh, price for natural gas. At um, oh, let's say ten times as high, and say it's going to. Here's what you're going to have to pay. Then all of a sudden, everybody would be digging for natural gas, and it would be a glut on the market. It, it, you know, it's just you you shouldn't have things operating without uh, some feedback that uh, informs uh, producers. Uh, you know how much to produce and. and Forms buyers uh, how much to buy and so forth. So um, <clears throat> let the price float free, and the uh, the market will take care of itself. Uh, and finally, what about well, actually two more? Um, but what about coal policy? You've mentioned a, a couple of things, particularly uh, recent things. But what I mean, what was what was coal policy like in the in the seventies and eighties, and then how has it changed subsequently? Well, um, the the thing that uh, changed, let's say, coal policy wasn't so much coal as it was uh, uh, things like uh, sulfur in the coal and and so forth. But but back in the let's say back in the fifties, uh, people burned coal because it was a, a cheap, available energy source and so forth. Uh, and <clears throat> it was. Actually burned in a lot of uh, in a lot of homes in home furnaces. In fact, I used to deliver coal my, myself when I was a kid. But um, the the thing is that it's hard to burn coal cleanly in a in a small furnace. Uh, if you have a large furnace where you can control the the uh, uh, emissions and can you control the temperature and the flow and everything else very well, you can come up with a very clean burn. And in fact, uh, uh, let's see, that, that, well, first the technology wasn't available back in the 50s. Uh, then, it, then it became available and so forth. But uh, still we had a lot of smokestack industries, and uh, the coal lobby was, was rather strong. Back in, in 1948, uh, John L. Lewis declared a coal miners strike uh, to get more money for the for the miners and for the miners unions and so forth uh, during the middle of winter when there was a big demand for coal. Uh, and um, so uh, that, I think, prompted uh, sort of a uh, uh, let's call it a policy to, to go toward more natural gas so that we wouldn't be as uh, as sensitive to uh, one little energy supply, but uh, there wasn't much. There wasn't really a coal policy back in those days, and later on, uh, there wasn't. Uh, there was no coal policy. I don't even think there's what you might call a coal policy today, but there is a policy for controlling air pollution and uh, and ground pollution and that sort of thing. There are policies pertaining to mining and uh, what miners are allowed to to do, but it's uh, uh, those are separate policies. That I don't think that you could say there is a policy on coal. Well, I mean, at the moment, they're, it seems like they're basically trying to ban it given what they're setting the air pollution requirements at to basically make it impossible to build a coal plant well yeah uh that that much is 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 true but but there um if if you would look under policy and so forth uh in the u.s government you probably wouldn't find uh policy that says you know such and such about coal it, it would say uh it would refer to things like uh pm two and a half which is particulate matter uh, between 
two and a half uh, micro inch, uh, no micrometers in size and ten micrometers in size, which is uh, allegedly uh, very dangerous. Uh, I, I should mention something that um, the uh, EPA uh, had has declared that this uh, so-called PM two and a half, that uh, very fine particulate matter is extremely dangerous and can cause death. And uh, at the same time, they were funding some research on uh, exposing people to uh, PM2.5. And so uh, they've got themselves in a bit of a bind because if they say this is extremely dangerous, which they have done, then uh, funding research uh, into, uh, uh, you know, or, <clears throat> wherein they give PM two and a half uh, in, into uh, people's atmospheres, you know, for, for experimental purposes, that would be uh, almost a, a felonious um, uh, uh, use of, of, medicine, of medical uh, research because you're doing something that you know is supposedly to be extremely dangerous. On the other hand, uh, if uh, if it isn't extremely dangerous, then they are in trouble because they have claimed that it's extremely dangerous and causes death. So uh, there's actually been a, a lawsuit filed, as far as I know, against the EPA on, on the grounds that uh, they have uh, followed this um, uh, you know, they, they have, have, have done this extremely unethical business of exposing humans to something that the EPA knows to be extremely dangerous. <laughs> Very funny. All right, one last, one last energy space to talk about, and that is the so-called green, so primarily solar and wind. We often hear that they are not subsidized enough, that they're not given enough, and that that... If they were, or if they were given equal treatment to the allegedly subsidized oil and gas companies, that they would they would win out. What is what's the actual situation with subsidies? Well, first thing I've got to mention there is uh, uh, there's a new word you ought to know. It's uh, called um, uh, chromoergic uh, psychosis, <laughs> which is the uh, delusion that energy has a color usually green um, but the, the the wind industry uh, and the solar industry are uh, extremely well subsidized uh, on the uh, on the grounds of energy produced or let's say no uh, dollars given to them uh, per unit energy produced uh, they get I don't remember the figures exactly but on, on that basis they get approximately a hundred times what any other uh, energy uh, source gets. Uh, in other words, uh, they they talk about a subsidy for coal and oil, which isn't really quite that. But we won't go into that detail. And for nuclear, the same thing. But uh, the, uh, in terms of energy pro- or money given to them per unit energy produced, uh, solar and wind. Uh, are way, way, way ahead of uh, coal and oil and nuclear and natural gas. Uh, so uh, that, that's that, that's a joke. Um, I, I read in this morning's paper uh, here, one of the two papers I read, uh, somebody was uh, uh, talking about the fledgling uh, wind industry. My heavens to Murgatroyd, you, you go out there and there's already... Uh, uh, tens of billions of dollars spent on uh, on wind installations, and uh, that doesn't exactly fit my definition of a fledgling industry, does it? Yours? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a fledgling wealth transfer. Uh, well, it's it's actually a fairly mature wealth transfer. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's unfortunately uh, the case. Okay, so we need to wrap up. Before we wrap up, definitely let's tell listeners about the Energy Advocate. Um, could you just introduce it to them and where they yeah. can find it? Well, the, the Energy Advocate is a uh, newsletter that I send out uh, once a month. 
It's four pages. Uh, we, we accept no advertising whatsoever uh, because uh, we may we, we don't want to have to pull any punches on the basis of that. Uh, we talk about energy topics, and uh, I actually happen to be a, a physicist, retired professor, and I've been I've started my 17th year writing this energy advocate. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to request a copy, uh, please send email to corkhayden, C-O-R-K-H-A-Y-D-E-N, at comcast.net. Uh, or if you want to, you can have a look at the uh, Energy Advocate website, which I don't keep up to date very much. It's just, it has just a bunch of uh useful facts in it in some cases, but that is www.energyadvocate.com. Uh, there, there are very few complete issues of the Energy Advocate, but there are some essays from it there. Uh, the real thing is the Energy Advocate coming by mail, uh, in, uh, typed on paper, not typed, it's printed, it's really quite nice. So um, and I, I hear a lot from uh, customers, uh, subscribers, who tell me that um, when that comes, they sit down and they read it uh, from one end to the other uh, just as soon as they receive it. So some people uh, really do enjoy it, and I'd be glad to hear from some of your uh, listeners. Yeah, it is It is really interesting, and I, I, I've I uh, talked about it before a little bit in my writing. There was an article I wrote on the incandescent light bulb, and it was just a really fascinating uh, scientific explanation of the difference between fluorescent and incandescent. And uh, there's lots of stuff like that where you get a combination of the policy, but also the the how things work, which is why it's great to have a, a physicist write it. Uh, all right, Howard, we're out of time, but uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Uh, okay, and just hold on one second. I'll, I'll talk to you after we wrap up the show. Um, but for the rest of you, thanks for listening. If you have any comments, as always, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. That's alex at industrialprogress.net. We'll be ne back next week with another great guest, another great topic. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.